This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. This morning we need to go to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 14. Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. We'll read a few verses together. Reading from verse 25 of Luke 14. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Thus, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation to ask conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Christian life is one of many contrasts. There are times of great rejoicing, but then there's times of weeping. There's times of fruitfulness, and, but then there's times of pruning. There's times of testing. There's times of resting. There's times of wrestling. There's times whenever we have plenty, and yet there are times whenever we lack. Paul said so, as much as said so in Philippians chapter 4, you don't need to turn to this, verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus was also very conscious of these times of contrast. Tremendous times of popularity, this was one of them, when multitudes would follow him. But then there was times of great opposition. And it seemed to be that everyone was turning against him. There was times he had the friendship and the fellowship of his disciples, which was warm and comforting. But then there was those times, and that time particularly, whenever all of them deserted him, even denied him, and fled. In Luke 14, Jesus spoke to the crowds that were following him that day. And what he said to them then is what he said to the crowds who follow him today. And that is to be a disciple of Jesus, it's going to cost you something. To be a disciple of Jesus is going to cost you something. 
three times in that portion of Scripture we read, verse 26, 27, and 33, he declared, unless you, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you, you cannot be my disciple. These were the strongest words I think that Jesus had to say to anybody. These are the most challenging. These are the most costly words, the most demanding words that Jesus spoke. And we need to pay attention to what he said. So becoming a disciple of Jesus, not just getting saved, but becoming a disciple of Jesus is going to be cost involved. It's going to be commitment. It's going to be dedication. It's going to be determination. It's going to be everything you have to give to him. Now, Jesus saw the fickleness of the crowd. He knew that they were looking for miracles. He knew that they were hungry at times and they wanted fed and he fed them and his graciousness, he gave them the miracles and he fed the, them the five loaves and two fishes and all of that. But in spite of that, he knew the fickleness of the people. He knew that the same crowd who would shout Hosanna the next day would shout crucify. So he knew their fickleness. And at the risk of losing the crowd, Jesus spelt out the cost. At the risk of losing the crowd, Jesus spelt out the cost. And he was never afraid to do this. Numbers in and of themselves doesn't mean very much. They really don't. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, and I said from this platform, just back from where I was, sitting in that great church of 10,000 people and knowing that their doctrines are good, knowing that they're doing everything they can to build up those people in their most holy faith, wonderful, I say amen to that. But equally, there are large cults who have their tens of thousands, in fact, who have their millions across the world. So numbers in and of themselves doesn't mean a lot. I mean, Gideon started off with an army of 32,000 and God whittled them down to 300. He wasn't impressed with the numbers because he wanted to get the glory. And so he, he asked them a series of questions. The first thing he asked them, tell them, ask them, if any of you are afraid, don't come to the battle. And 22,000 immediately, 22,000 left, didn't want any part of it. And so he whittled them down to 300 and they won the battle, as you know. God was willing to wipe out the whole world and begin again with just one family. Noah, his wife, their three sons, and the three daughters-in-law, just eight and all. And so sometimes we as preachers, and I've been guilty of this, I suppose, as much as anybody else, that we're guilty of not really spelling out the cost. We so desperately want people to come to Christ, to be saved, to be born again, that sometimes we, we miss out the cost. Not the, There's no cost of getting saved. We can't earn that. We don't deserve that. That's mercy. That's grace. We accept it by faith. But after you get saved, there's a cost involved to follow Christ. If we're going to be true disciples, it's going to cost you something. And sometimes we, we don't say that. We so want people to come into the kingdom that we don't want to scare them off before they even get in by announcing there's a cost. 
sometimes we, we hide the price tag. You know that in the most expensive jewelers, you go down to London, Belfast, you look in the window, you'll see very, very, very expensive diamonds and precious stones and watches, but they hide the price tag, they turn it over because they don't want you to be put off immediately. They don't want you to look at the price and gasp. They want you to come in and feed it and handle it and put it on your finger and get him to buy it for you and things like that. And, <laughs> and sometimes it's a bit like that with us. We, we, we kind of hide that this is going to cost you something. Jesus never hid the, the price tag. He always spelled out the cost. In Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 10, After Jesus had that discussion with the rich young ruler who went away, he had great riches and he many possessions and he, he walked away from Christ. Verse 23 of Mark 10, then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man, that is a rich man who's trusting in his riches to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished then among themselves, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, see, we have left all and have followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life with persecutions with a cost involved. In 1 Peter chapter 2, and again, you don't necessarily have to turn to all of these. First Peter chapter 2, verse 20. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to you this, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. And so, if you're beaten for your faults, you've done wrong, you're beaten, you deserve that. And you take it. Say, well, I had that coming. It's my mistake. I got it wrong. I have to take my punishment. So there's nothing special in that. But if you haven't done wrong, and you've done everything right, and you still get hammered, and you still get accused, and you still people come against you, and you take that patiently, he says, that's commendable. That's what commends you. And that's all part of discipleship because this is what he's talking about. In 1 Peter 5, just across the page a little bit, 
verse 9. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, resist the devil that is, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then in Romans chapter 8. Again, the Apostle Paul goes on to say in verse 17. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Because I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And in a way, towards the end of that particular chapter in verse uh, 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. In James chapter 5, 10, 11, James says, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. So at some point or other in your Christian walk, some point or other, you're going to get opposition. Someone, some people, or something is going to come against you. And they may not even understand why. Somebody in your workplace will pick on you, will single you out for their attention in a negative way. And they may not even know why they're doing that. But this is part of living for Christ. <laughs> Unless you've been in a bubble in this past 10, 15 years, uh, you have noticed how that there are new laws that are being enforced in Great Britain and in Ireland and Northern Ireland that's really not conducive to the Christian. It's not helpful for the believer. And some of the things that we hold most dear are being swept away by laws that men are making. And that's going to increase. And so we need to be ready for that. There's people who's preaching on the streets who are being arrested falsely. Police has no business arresting them because there's freedom of speech. But they're being arrested. The case is being fought and it's thrown out of court. But they keep doing it. And they continue to do it until they think they're going to get their way by doing that. And so as believers, this is part of the cost of discipleship. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. When they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Now, perhaps you're like me. I, I, whenever I became a believer, uh, my mom and my sisters who were believers were absolutely thrilled my wife, who was a believer, she was thrilled, prayed much for me. My father, who wasn't a believer, but he was happy that I had accepted Christ. And my guess is, for most of you, that's something similar. You know, your, your parents, or maybe your granny and your granddad prayed for you for years, your aunts and uncles, or whatever, or cousins, they were happy for you. Maybe they weren't believers, but they were happy for you. That was your decision, and they went along with that. And so for most of us, that's probably the way it is. Uh, nobody really and our family really came out against us because we became believers. Maybe that did happen to you, and if it did, I'm sorry, but there are people today, right now, as I speak, and if they become a Christian in an Islamic family, or even a Jewish family, or a Hindu family, or a Buddhist family, it could cost them their very life. They could be killed by their own family because they receive Christ. And so even though we're sheltered, nobody's threatening our lives yet, but just a plane right away, people are. In China today, Christianity and all religions in China is being squashed and stamped upon. Churches are being pulled down. Now they're making uh, a new Chinese Bible with the dictates of communism in it. Now Christians are not allowed to be buried in a Christian burial as from this month as I speak. You know, so if you lived in China, this would be very real to you. The cost of discipleship might cost you everything. Could that come here? Who knows? But Jesus is warning here. And then he goes on to say in verse 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be of his own household. Fortunately for most of us, that has never happened. But for many on earth today, just to become a believer, that's exactly what it would mean. A sword would come into that family. Not that Jesus is saying that we come against our father and mothers and brothers and sisters, not at all, but that they could come against us. That's what he's saying. And that's part of the discipleship that he's talking about here. Now let's turn to Luke 14 and see how Jesus illustrates the cost. In verse 25, now great multitudes went with him. And so this was a time of great popularity. But this was a mixed multitude. People were coming with their own agendas. No doubt there were those who came to hear him teach and preach, but many came to see what they could get. 
uh, maybe a miracle. Maybe their felt need would be met. And Jesus, being gracious, often did that to the multitudes because he had compassion on them. But he also knew that for most of them, they weren't coming for him. They were coming for themselves, what they could get from him. That's what they were coming for. And he knew that. And so that's why he's issuing this challenge. And then in verse 26, he says, these words that needs a little bit of qualifying. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, cannot be my disciple. Now, hate is a strong word, isn't it? Now, surely it's obvious that he doesn't mean hate as in what we're thinking, because that would be going against the fifth commandment, to love, excuse me, and to honor our parents for a start. And husbands need to honor and love their wives, and wives need to honor and love their husbands and their children, and their children us. So it must mean something more than, than just that. Well, the Hebrews, had a, this was a Hebrew idiom, they had a way of, of highlighting something by, by putting in the negative so that you could see the opposite, which would be the complete opposite, would be the positive. For instance, in, in chapter 10 uh, of, of, of uh, Matthew that we just read, and verse 37, he says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. So that's qualifying. This business of hating, he's qualifying this. That was a very negative statement. About, but, but the Jewish people listening understood that. So he's qualifying that here in Matthew 10. What it really means, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. So in other words, there could come a moment when you may have to go against what your father, your mother, your brothers, your sisters, or your best friends may say if, if it somehow is going to lead you from Christ if it somehow is going to let you be less of a follower, if somehow you're going to have watered down what you believe, then you have to take a stand and say, no, this is what Scripture says, this is what the Lord says, this is what I have to do, even though that may cost you. It may cost you something to do that, but you may have to do that. For instance, you may feel a call to be a missionary, to go to some land where it could be dangerous to go to, and your parents may be up in arms. They may be aghast that you would even consider that. But if that call is in your life, then you will have no choice but to say, Mom, Dad, I love you, I respect you, I honor you, but I must put Christ first. I must put the gospel first. That's what he's saying. And if we don't do that, he says, you're not worthy of me. So this is a serious business, isn't it? He's really spelling out the cost. So we're under no illusion. Nothing to do with our salvation. That's free. Can't earn that. Don't deserve that. But our discipleship, that's what it's really going to cost. You see, this business of cross-bearing, Jesus here, he's not teaching here on salvation. He's teaching on discipleship. We come to his cross for salvation, but we carry our cross in discipleship. I'll say that again. We come to his cross for salvation, but we carry our cross in discipleship. And there's a cross for us to carry. 
It may mean that you may lose a friend, you may lose a family member. It may mean that you may have to turn away from something. It may mean you have to give up something. But that's the price that has to be paid to be a follower of Christ. And then he gives two illustrations of a building and a battle. A building and a battle. Something being built and a battle going on. And commentators are divided in exactly what he means by this. And so they say there's, there's two options here. Some say that we are the builders and we are the battlers. Others say that Christ is the builder and Christ is the battler and we are what he builds with and we are what he battles with. So you may take both of those or either or. Let's look at us as the builders and the battlers. Will we finish what we started? Will we keep going on? Because at some point in your Christian experience, you may be challenged on whether you want to continue. This, this country is full of backsliders, isn't it? Sometimes it's the biggest denomination in Northern Ireland. <laughs> Literally. It's full of backsliders. People who came to a point where they felt the cost is too much. I don't want to give this up. I don't want to give him up or her up or that up or this up. So I'll just go back. And so will we finish what we have started? Will we count the cost and pay the price? Now, Christ doesn't want us to count the cost and say, oh, that's too much. That's me done. No, no. He wants you to count the cost and say, whatever it costs, whatever it's going to take, then I'm going to do it for his sake. That's what he's really wanting. And so he talks then about building a tower. Now, this tower is a lookout post in a vineyard because they had to protect their harvest. So they would build a high tower for the sentry to look out and make sure that there were no thieves coming in or there's no wild animals stinging their crops or whatever. But it had to be broad enough to build high enough. And so this was going to cost something to do this. It's going to take time, it's going to take effort, it's going to take labor. So he gives the illustration of would you start it and then not finish it? Because if you start it and not finish it, people say, ah, look, they started but they didn't finish. So he says, whatever you start, make sure that you finish it, do it, complete it, go the whole distance, don't look back, keep going forward, even though it's tough sometimes, but you've got to keep going on with the Lord, amen. And then it talks about a battle. Are we prepared to win in our spiritual battles? Will we recognize the enemy when he comes? Will we count our resources in Christ? Well, at the first battle, will we give up and give in? It says too much. It's too hard. Well, God gives us the strength and the grace. And he gives us the weapons. The weapons of our warfare, it tells us about in Ephesians 6, doesn't it? So he gives us everything we need to win our battles. Yes, it can be tough. Yes, it can be hard. Yes, it can be difficult. But in Christ, everything we need to win this battle, we have got it. We've got the resources. We've got Christ on our side. We're on the winning side. We're going to get the victory, no matter what the battle is. So that's what he is saying. And I, I'm, I'm mindful when I speak about builders and battlers. I'm mindful of the story of Nehemiah. And you remember Nehemiah? Let me just read a little bit here. 
uh, again, you don't need to turn to this, Nehemiah chapter 4, and uh, how that he came back to Jerusalem to rebuild all the broken down walls that surrounded Jerusalem. They were smashed, they were burnt, they were broken down, they were a mess, laying for years. But Nehemiah came back to rebuild them. And of course, as soon as he did, then opposition rose up. He was obeying God. He was being a good disciple. He was doing what was right. But then opposition rose up. And it says, But it happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? So they're very condescending and patronizing uh, and rude uh, and, and just couldn't think of enough things to say against him. And sometimes you'll find somebody will do that with you. They'll become very rude and patronizing and they will do everything they can to kind of discourage you and, and try to make you feel weak and, and useless and hopeless. Now Tobiah and the Ammonite that was beside him, now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Then they said, hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn the reproach on their heads. Give them plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity. Do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So he built the wall. And the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now it happened when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them we set a watch against them day and night. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing. There's much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said they will neither know nor see anything till we come into the midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. And so it was when the Jews who dwelt near, uh, near then came, they, they, sorry, and it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came and they told us 10 times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set people according to their families, notice, with their swords, with their spears, with their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the leaders, to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, every one to his work. And so it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction, while the other half held spears, the shields, and the bows, and the war armor, and the leaders were behind the house of Judah. So here are the builders and the battlers at the same time. And us as believers in Christ, as disciples of Christ, we are builders and we are battlers. Amen. We're building the kingdom of God, but we've got a battle to do that. And of course, if you want to look at it the other way, where Christ is the builder and the battler, and we are the materials that he's building with, and he's building a great temple, all right? And we are his soldiers in his army. 
But then verse 33, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, does that mean then that Christ expects us to give everything we have away? No, I don't think so. I don't think that's what he's meaning. What he's getting at here is the, the right of it, the possession of it. He wants us to be stewards of it. He wants us not to say, well, this is mine, and I'm going to hold on to this. He wants to say, this all belongs to God, and if he wants it or if he needs it, I am willing. Forsake here means renounce, to give up the ownership of not to hold on to it if he wants it. That's what it really means. That's what he's saying. And so this is the difference between ownership and stewardship. So we give up the possession of it, the owning of it, and we're willing, if necessary, to give it up. Now the chances, the chances of God coming to any of us and saying, I want everything you've got, I want you to give it all away to my kingdom tomorrow. Sell your house, your car, everything, give it all away. The chance of that is absolutely remote. But what if it's that one thing? What if it's that one thing that you want to hold on to? What if it's that just that one thing that you prize above all things that maybe has become a little God to you? What if he says, I want you to give that up. I want you to renounce that. I want you to hand that over. Would you do it? Would you? Would I do it? Because that's discipleship. And that's what he's saying. To forsake here means to renounce. To say, God, I'm the steward of everything I have. But the reality is one day we're going to leave it anyway. One day we'll be parted from it, so let's not get too attached. But that's what he's saying here. And that's part of discipleship. Now that may require us giving up a relationship. If that relationship is taking us away from the Lord, if it's coming between us and the Lord, then he may say, listen, if you really want to be my disciple, you've got to make a choice and a decision here because you've got it both. If this is taking you away from me, then you've got to decide. That could be a career, it could be a business, it could be a job, it could be a friendship, it could be within the family, it could be a multitude of things. But it could be something that's draining us spiritually, that's taking us away from the Lord. And he may come and say, do you know what? You've got to make up your mind here. You've got to choose. You've got to choose. I like what Josh has said. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The word, we're almost finished. The word disciple is mentioned some 269 times in the New Testament. And the word Christian only three times. And in those three times, it refers to the disciples. So doesn't that tell us something? Doesn't that tell us that the Holy Spirit who wrote this book is trying to show us that what God really wants us to be is his disciples? You know, we don't call ourselves disciples, we call ourselves Christians. If somebody asks you, well, what about your religion? What do you believe? You say, well, I'm a Christian. You'd never say, well, I'm a disciple. But in the early church, Christian was a nickname. It was a derogatory name that was used referring to the disciples, disciples of Christ, people who had disciplined themselves to be followers of Christ. So that's really what God wants us to be. But it's going to cost 
something to do that and to be that. Finish with this. What's the difference between student or disciple? A student learns what his master knows, but a disciple becomes what his master is. A student learns what his master knows, but a disciple becomes what his master is. And the Lord just doesn't want us to know a lot. It's good to know a lot of the Word of God, for instance, but he wants us to become what he is, to be more like him. And the more we know what we read in the Bible, then the more we should become like him. I'm going to close with this. I got this this morning. A friend of mine in England sent this. And it kind of fits in with what I've been saying today, actually, about discipleship. We all know about the coronavirus. It's on television night and day. And it was on television just a couple of days ago, but the young doctor who discovered it and warned the authorities about it, but he was arrested, and they tried to shut him up, which was unfortunate because they had to listen to him and took the warning, maybe it wouldn't have been as bad as it is today. But this is interesting. So all across China, people are talking about Dr. Li Wenlang, and they are. They're on the internet going mad talking about it. Of course, the Chinese will probably cut that down. So all across China, people were talking about Dr. Li Wenlang. He was the doctor who discovered the novel uh, coronavirus in the early morning of the 7th of February. And then in the early morning of February, 7th of February, at 2.58 a.m., he was promoted into glory and went home to be with her father in heaven. He was a believer. Back in December last year, he was arrested for being a whistleblower, spreading rumors about a mysterious pneumonia-like virus. And this morning, we found out he was, in fact, a fellow brother in Christ. Our hearts are deeply moved by his sacrificial choice to spread awareness about the virus, despite the risks he faced, especially to his own reputation and to his own health. He continued to care for patients until he was infected himself, what a legacy to leave behind of what it means to be like Jesus to those hurting in a time of crisis. He chose to be an example of Emmanuel, God with us, to the people of Wuhan. Can you imagine the joy we must have felt as he entered into eternity and heard the good words, heard the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. So today, please pray for his family, especially his wife, who is also infected and eight months pregnant with their second child. May God heal them supernaturally and give them grace, peace, and strength and comfort during this time. Dr. Li Wang Lang penned a deeply touching Chinese poem below of how he would miss his family, his beloved Wuhan, and quoted 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who love his appearing. So here's a captivating, heart-touching Chinese poem I've tried to translate into English, whoever it was who translated this. It was written in memory of Dr. Li Wenlang, a Christian doctor, a whistleblower who died from the coronavirus himself after being punished for issuing the first warning about the deadly outbreak. Here's what it says. I don't want to be a hero. I still have my parents and my children and my pregnant wife who's about to give birth and many of my patients in the ward through my integrity cannot be, though my integrity cannot be exchanged for the goodness of others, despite my loss and confusion, I should proceed anyway. 
Who let, me lose, who let me choose this country and this family? How many grievances do I have? When this battle is over, I will look up to the sky with tears like rain. But I don't want to be a hero because as a doctor, I cannot just see this unknown virus hurting my peers and so many innocent people. Though they are dying, they're always looking at me in their eyes with their hope of life. Who would have realized that I was going to die? My soul is in heaven, looking down at the white bed in which my own body lies with the same familiar face. Where are my parents and my dear wife, the lady I once had a hard time chasing? There's a light in the sky. At the end of that light is the heaven that people often talk about. But I'd rather not go there yet. I'd rather go back to my hometown of Wuhan. I have a new house there for which I still have to pay off the loan every month. How can I give up? How can I give up? For my parents without their son, how sad it must be. For my sweetheart without her husband, how can she face the vicissitudes in her future? I am already gone. I see them taking my body, putting it in a bag with which lie many compatriots, gone like me, being pushed into the fire and the hearth at dawn. Goodbye, my dear ones. Farewell, Wuhan, my hometown. Hopefully after the disaster, you'll remember someone once tried to let you know the truth as soon as possible. Hopefully after the disaster, you'll learn what it means to be righteous. No more good people should suffer from endless fear and helpless sadness. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Now there's in store for me the crown of righteousness. See, sometimes it costs to be a disciple, to tell the truth, even though it may cost you your job and it may cost you your life, as it did that young doctor in China. And so Jesus said we're to count the cost if we're going to be true disciples. Wonderful to be saved, wonderful to know your books, your name's in the book of life, that's wonderful, can't take away from that, didn't pay a penny for that, but now that you are saved, and you're going to live for Christ. And you're going to have to battle. And you're going to have to build. And you're going to have to keep on keeping on. Amen? <coughs> Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, in these days that we're living in, we pray that you'll give us the strength and the grace to be true disciples, to be genuine believers, not to go back, not to give up, but to keep going on in Christ. Thanking you for all the resources that we need to win in every battle in life. Lord, as we had earlier in that prayer, you have never failed us and you will never forsake us. So we give you thanks today for who you are. We thank you for saving our eternal souls. Help us now, Lord, to live a life that reflects your glory. The people may see Christ in us, the hope of glory, and that they will be attracted to the Savior. Help us to be real disciples, living every day for the King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.